last night uh, was just brutal weather, and I see that many of you guys are all buttoned up. I think the heat in here is okay, uh, so if you want to get a little more comfortable, you know, take off your scarves, your, your winter jackets, um, it, it'll be nice and toasty in here. Uh, well, uh, the book of Exodus is a book that can be divided into four parts. Uh, the first part uh, is about God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. The second part is about God, after that rescue, leading his people in the wilderness journey. The third part of Exodus is about the tabernacle and God's dwelling with his people, God's presence coming down through the tabernacle. And the fourth part of Exodus is about the law. Now, last week, we finished part one, and today we have turned the page to a new chapter in the life of God's people, the journey. You know, this part, the journey found in Exodus, I think, is one of the most applicable and practical sections in all of the Bible. And this isn't just my insight and my belief. But I say that it's practical and applicable because the New Testament authors, they see this Exodus story as actually a paradigm for the Christian life. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, oh, here's a nice graphic journey. Uh, what do I mean by this? Um, think about uh, the Exodus story of what the Israelites are doing, right? First, they are in slavery in Egypt, and from then... Uh, they are redeemed, they are rescued through the Passover lamb and the plagues, and then they cross the Red Sea, through which they enter into the wilderness and they journey, and then they enter into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the New Testament writers, when they read Exodus, they realized that, wait, this Exodus story is actually a type of, uh, for the Christian life. It's, it's actually a paradigm for the Christian life. And Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 10. The author of Hebrews uses this throughout in Hebrews 3 and 4. And they look at this story and say, wait, this is a paradigm for the Christian. And so they say this, slavery in Egypt is much like us Christians when we were once slaves to sin and death, right, in a foreign land. And then through the redemption of Jesus, the Lamb of God, we are freed. And just as the Israelites then crossed the Red Sea, we then are born again by a new birth symbolized by baptism, symbolized by water. And then, just as the Israelites journeyed in the wilderness, so also we journey here on life. And finally, just like the Israelites, we enter into the promised land. We enter into the land that God has promised, the new heavens and the new earth. So the New Testament authors, when they look at this you know, Exodus story, they see this as being analogous to the believer, to the Christian, right? Where, um, you know, for the Christian... Slavery is behind us, and the full realization of God's promises are ahead of us. And in the meantime, what is this life here on earth? Well, this life here on earth is a journeying. It's a journeying together with God leading us. 
And so, uh, we are now in this section. This, uh, if I could just point out for you, this, this journeying in the wilderness. Uh, this doesn't seem to be working, but, oh, there it goes. All right. Yeah, we're in this section, this journeying in the wilderness, uh, and it represents a lot of our life here on earth as Christians, as we pilgrim towards what God has promised. And so, as we go through this section, you'll actually find it to be extremely practical and applicable. Uh, This passage, these passages, this journey uh, story is a real clear and accurate mirror of where we are at. Now, uh, this passage uh, before us, the, the first story that happens right after the crossing of the Red Sea and the celebration that goes down, uh, this story is actually addressing a, a very interesting question. And it, the question is this, is it better to be slaves in Egypt or freed people in the wilderness? Is it better to be slaves in Egypt, at that point the world's richest country, or is it better to be freed people in the desert? This is one of those questions that I think proved to be quite difficult. You know, it's like asking, is it better to be rich with no friends or poor with many friends? There's a dilemma there. And the Israelites are asking this question. Is it better to be slaves in Egypt or free in the wilderness? So let's get right into the passage. The passage tells us that the people have been journeying for three days. It's been three days since their journey. Three days since they saw the most powerful man on earth get hurled into the sea. Three days since they saw the most terrifying army be defeated It's been three days since their celebration, three days since their hoedown at the Red Sea, filled with song and dance. It's been three days. They've journeyed for three days. Two million people with all of their livestock and all of their possessions, three days in the wilderness. And with each step, as they were moving further and further away from the Red Sea, the memory of God's salvation became more and more distant. And the further they traveled with each step, the more closer they became, the more closer they came to that reality that they were now in the desert with no water. Three days. Three days they were traveling, and finally they reach a place called Mara. Now, at this point, they are questioning and thinking, what are we doing here? Is this redemption really worth it all? And as they were thinking that in their mind, meditating upon that, three days, they reach a place called Mara, and they find some water. And there, you can imagine, people are rushing to that water because they've been so thirsty. But when they put their hands in, cup the water, and try to drink from it, to their disgust, they discover that the water was actually bitter. It was undrinkable. And now this was the trigger. This is what set off the people. Their lids come off. The people open their mouths, and they start to complain. They ask, where are we going to get water? They start to grumble. The grumbling in their hearts actually now come out. Where are we going to get water? 
You know, three days. It took the people three days to forget the greatest spiritual experience ever. It took them three days to forget their salvation. It took them three days to go from praise to complaint. Three days to go from rejoicing to grumbling. You know, God's people throughout the Old Testament are often described in two ways. Okay, they're not really good, but they're described in two ways. The first is stubborn. Stubborn. And the second is forgetful. God's people often suffer from spiritual amnesia. It doesn't take long for God's people to forget how good and faithful the Lord is. You know, three years ago when uh, we went on our first trip to, uh, to Myanmar, uh, the missionary there, or the national partner there, Dr. Tial, he uh, took the team around uh, to visit some of the churches in the area, to meet some of the pastors and some of the congregation. And he took us to one particular church. And uh, I have a picture for us here. Not sure if it's clear. Uh, but he took us to a number of churches, and this is one of the churches that he took us to. And we met a number of the members of the church, and they started to share their testimony. Well, there was this one individual. I'm not sure if you can see him. He's uh, right, uh, right there. That, that man, that individual, actually started to share his testimony. And there in that hot room in, in, uh, in, in Myanmar, this man, he's sharing powerfully about how God had saved his son. And as he's sharing his testimony, his hands are flailing, there are tears in his eyes, and his voice is projecting. And mind you, we don't understand a single word, but he is sharing with conviction in, quite, in a quite moving way about how God had saved his son, how, about, how God had answered his prayers, about how he was once a skeptic, but he experienced and encountered the living God. And, you know, I'm thinking there, and I'm sitting there, and, you know, it, it's a moving, moving testimony as it, as it seems. And, and I sit there, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this incident happened years ago. It happened a number of years ago. And I'm thinking, man, every time a short-term team comes or every time a vision team comes, you know, the, Dr. Tiel, he takes, you know, the people around from the States, and he brings them to these churches and he shares the same testimony over and over again. You know, and I started looking around to the members of the church, and I'm thinking, man, how many times must, you know, must, you know, have they heard this same story? You know, and, and, and I see the way in which the man is sharing with the same conviction, and the members are hearing with the same engagement. I think, Wow. There is a man who doesn't suffer from spiritual amnesia. You know, if I ever recycle, even an illustration during a message, the congregations are usually, oh, yeah, we've heard that one before. But this man was sharing his testimony, I don't know, for dozens of times by now in, the, in those years with, with new people from the States over and over again, and he's sharing as if he's sharing for the first time. And I thought, man, there is a man who remembers God's goodness and faithfulness. And there is a church that can hear the same story over and over again and be refreshed by it. 
You know, that moment I was looking around and, I'm, and, I, and I secretly I was hoping that, you know, I was, I was hoping, you know, every time I come back, man, I, I was thinking, man, I wish I could see this man and I wish I can hear the same testimony with the same force, with the same conviction, with the same heart. Do you know why when we share our testimony over and over again? I mean, the first few times there's much conviction of how we met Christ. But about the 10th time, about the 20th time, about the 50th time, it's just an afterthought. It's because the further removed from it we become, the more distant it has become in our memory. You know, too often, you know, if I've heard brothers and sisters, you know, when I ask them, hey, so tell me your your testimony. Tell me how God has saved you. And they cut it so short. They say, well, you know, I shared it a couple times, but basically it's this. And they just give me a small snippet. I said, no, I want the whole thing. How is it that God has saved you? You know, the, the Israelites here in Exodus 15, it's only been three days, but they have forgotten And they start to complain and they start to question, where are we going to get water? You know, over and over again in this wilderness journey, the people's posture is not one of gratitude and thanksgiving and trust, but it is one of complaint. It's one of grumbling. And you know the question that they ask the most? You know the question that they ask Moses the most? It's not... Hey, Moses, can you tell us once again about how God rescued us? No, it's not that. The question they ask the most is this. Did God bring us here to die? That's the question they ask the most. Did God save us just so we can die here? You know, the people are really starting to think at this point, is it better to be a slave in Egypt than be a free man in the wilderness? At least when we were in Egypt, the waters of the Nile, at least the waters of that river, it was sweet. But now we are here in the wilderness, and all we have is bitter water that we cannot even drink. You know, God knows the grumbling of the people's heart. He knows they're complaining. And so he decides to address this. Here in Exodus 15, the first story three days after their journey. He knows that the people are grumbling. He knows that they are forgetting, and he knows that they are being filled with regret at this point. And so God brings them to the waters of Morrow. He knows that the waters of Morrow were bitter. He created them. But why did he do such things? So that when the people tasted the bitter water, that they would remember their former lives under Egyptian rule. God intentionally led them out to Marah so that when they drank it, they could remember, oh, just as these waters are bitter, so also was our lives under slavery, under the Egyptians. You know, Exodus 1 actually describes the Israelites, their, their condition in this way. So they ruthlessly, they as the Egyptians, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. And as the people are now thinking, 
Was being a slave in Egypt better? God, he brings them to Marah to taste the bitter waters to remind them, no, Egypt was actually bitter. And what happens after this? Further, he tells Moses, hey, pick up this log, pick up this twig, this branch of tree that's on the floor and throw it into the water. And when he does, what happens is the water, that bitter water becomes sweet. You know, immediately, why did God do this? It's because immediately, you know, when the people saw this, they should have been reminded of two things. They should have been reminded of the very first plague when Moses used his staff to strike the Nile and turn it into blood. And the very last time they saw their enemy, when Moses stretched out his staff and split the Red Sea. And so this log being thrown into the water that turns the water from bitter to sweet was yet another reminder of what God had done for his people thus far, of how he had redeemed them, of how he had turned their bitter lives sweet. When they tasted that water that was sweet, when they tasted that water that was a delight, they should have been reminded once again of God's good salvation to them. You know, through this episode, God wanted to remind his people of how he made their bitter lives sweet again. And he, rem- and he actually here at the end, he reveals his name as healer. He says, my name is Healer. The reason why he says, my name is Healer, is not because he wants to be known as someone who can heal water. God is not a water purifying system or a reverse osmosis system. When God says, my name is Healer, he's saying, my name is Healer because I have actually healed you. I have changed your bitter lives of meaninglessness and slavery into one that is sweet and life-giving. And if that wasn't enough, shortly after Mara, the text tells us they come to a place called Elam. And Elam is an oasis. There in the wilderness, to their amazement, they discover a place where they find 12 springs of water, 12 springs of fresh water, and 70 palm trees giving shade. You see what God is doing here? There's a place called Elam, and there's exactly 12 springs for the 12 tribes of Israel, one for each tribe. 70 palm trees representing the 70 people that actually went down into Egypt at the end of Genesis. And there they camp there and they rest. Do you see what God is doing here? I mean, isn't this story so beautiful? You know, scientists say that a person under perfect conditions can live with no water for one week. Now, if the person is moving and there's heat, they say that, the, that a person can last up to three to four days. Do you think God didn't know this? As he's leading them in this three-day journey, taking them from Mara to drink that bitter water, right behind them was a place called Elam that God had prepared for them. You know, God is addressing this concern 
The people are thinking, is it better to be slaves in Egypt or a free man in the wilderness? And God is showing, no, actually, Egypt is bitter. And through Elam, he is showing that the springs in the wilderness are far better than anything the Nile has to offer. God is showing that the wilderness with God is far better than being in even the richest land in the entire world. He's showing that while it is the wilderness, when God is there, it is paradise. Um, Abolitionist uh, Frederick Douglass, he writes in his uh, memoirs that um, one of the most powerful weapons that slave owners used to control their slaves was food and drink. Douglas writes, uh, as he recalls his time as a young slave boy, that there were times where he would be so hungry, he was so hungry that he would fight with the house dog over crumbs that fell from the table. I mean, imagine a young boy on fours fighting with a dog to, to take the crumbs out of his mouth because he was so, so hungry. He recalls how he would wait for the waiting girl to come to shake the tablecloth so that he can go quickly and pick up the crumbs and fill his stomach. You know, because he was so hungry, he says that often the slave masters, they would control him. They would control all the slaves with this line. They would say this, slaves enjoy more physical comfort of life than even the free presence of anyone in any country. That's what they would say. You as a slave, you are enjoying more comfort than even peasants in the place where you are from. You know, what was even more sinister was what they would do during Christmas. The slave masters during Christmas, what they would do is they would give six days off for the slaves. And they would provide all the food and all the drink that they wanted Gluttony and drunkenness, actually, during these six days, was almost, a man, it was almost mandatory. And the masters, what they would do is they would force everyone to eat as much as they wanted, and they would force everyone to drink as much whiskey as they could. The masters even made bets on who could drink the most, and they enjoyed the sight of seeing their slaves laugh and dance, become full, and then become drunk. Now, at the end of the holiday, what would happen was the slaves, they would wake up sickened by the excess of alcohol, and the hungover men, they would wake up and think, might as well be a slave to man than a slave to rum. And Douglas writes this. He says this to describe that scene. After that celebration, he says, we staggered up from the filth of our wallowing. We took a long breath and we marched to the field, feeling rather glad to go. And I'm paraphrasing here, but our master had deceived us into thinking that we were free to go back to the field, when in fact we were going back into the arms of slavery. Is it better to be a slave in Egypt or a free man in the wilderness? This is what Frederick Douglass was wrestling with as a young boy. Would I rather be a slave to man or a slave to alcohol? This is how they deceived him. 
Is it better, friends, to be someone in darkness? Is it better to be someone in ignorance, a slave yet unaware that he is a slave? Or is it better to be a believer in the wilderness, struggling? I've often stumbled upon Christians who've asked this question. What would it be like if we can go back to our Egyptian days when we were slaves to sin, but not knowing we were actually slaves? Is it better to be a slave not knowing he is a slave or be a believer in the wilderness struggling? Or to make it concise, the question that people would often ask is, is the gospel really that good? Is Christ really that much better? I would hear non-Christians ask this when they're offered the gospel. Is Christianity everything you say it is? Is the gospel all that you claim it to be? And I would, in fact, hear Christians ask this question. Is Jesus really that good? Today's passage reminds us that the answer is always yes. Because the apparent wilderness is actually better than anything we have experienced back there. Because when God is with us, even the wilderness becomes paradise. You know, they say this, right? A vacation is only as good as the people you go with. And that is what God is teaching the Israelites. They, though they are in the apparent wilderness, he's teaching that in the wilderness, when God is there, there are springs of life and rest. You know, while the Israelites, and maybe we as Christians, we struggle with this question, is it better to be a slave in Egypt than a freed man in the wilderness? Jesus actually wrestled with a different question here on earth. The question that Jesus struggled with was this. Is it better to be in heaven with a father above, perfect in harmony and unity, just as, you know, as, just as time began? Is it better to be there, or is it better to be incarnate in the flesh, being despised and rejected by man? And the only reason why he was here was to be obedient to the Father's will. Which is better? You know, Jesus... You know, much like the Israelites and much like us, he actually spent some time in the wilderness too. Um, and actually, Luke records this really well. Jesus, you know, after uh, his baptism, he's led, after his own baptism, after his crossing of the Red Sea, Jesus is led to the wilderness where he's tempted and tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And there the Son of Man goes without food and drink. And there the devil... Satan comes to him with this question. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He says, if you are God's son, do this. Jesus doesn't. He remains obedient because this was not the right time. And then the devil asks him another question and tempts him in this way. If you then will worship me, he says, I will give you all of this as if all of that wasn't already his. And then Jesus, the third time, he's faced with this temptation. If you are the Son of God, 
throw yourself down and let your angels catch you because you are their master, aren't you? You know, I mean, if, this is, I think, a very interesting passage. And you have to think, like, if you're Jesus, right, and you have all the power in the world, you are the son of God. And here's this little Satan, you know, this, this little tempter, and he's like, you know, jumping up and down, ah, if you're the son of man, right, you know. I mean, Jesus could have just put an end to him and crushed him. You know what? You are questioning me. You're saying you're going to give me all of this. This is already mine. You're asking if I am the son of man, or if I am the son of God? And he could have put an end to him there. But he waited. He waited. A few years later, Jesus is at the cross. And there, facing his penalty, facing his execution, people in the crowd, they actually ask him this. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you really are who you say you are, Save yourself. But Jesus continues to remain obedient in the wilderness and at the cross. He remains obedient as the Son of God and the Son of Man because he knew by doing this, he would not only defeat Satan, but by doing this, he would redeem his people. This was the time that Jesus was waiting for, to destroy his enemy. You know, just like the New York Giants back in 07, I think, right, when they faced the undefeated Patriots, right? They could have beaten them week 17, but they waited. They waited. It wasn't the right time. They waited until the Super Bowl to defeat the undefeated Patriots. They waited for the right time. You know, Jesus is the one who, he was the one who really thirsted. There on the cross, he says he thirsts. And he was given to drink not springs of water, but he was given to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus did this for you and I because he is our better Moses. And he is the one leading us in this wilderness. Because Jesus is with us. Because he has redeemed us. Even this wilderness. We can call it paradise. You know, in Luke, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the last words that he says to, to a person is this. He looks over to one of the criminals that he's being crucified with, and when he confesses belief, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He promises to a criminal who was in the wilderness paradise upon belief. And so this morning... If any, of you, if any of you are wrestling with this question, is it better to be a slave in Egypt than a free man in the wilderness? The Lord reminds us that the wilderness is actually springs of life. The wilderness is actually paradise with him. Let me just tell you this one story um, about um, a man named Robert, Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson was the man who actually wrote the, uh, the well-known hymn, Come Down Fount of Every Blessing. And um, it was uh, very descriptive of Robert Robinson's life. You know, for those of you who know, the third verse says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
Robert Robinson was actually a man who had wandered a lot in his life. Uh, he grew up his, with, without a father. His father had passed away really, really early. And he grew up um, you know, living a life of debauchery. But at the age of 20, he hears a sermon uh, by George Whitfield at that time. And there he confesses. He turns to the Lord. And he actually becomes a Methodist minister, a Methodist pre- a pastor. And he writes this hymn, Come down fount of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But just as he had predicted, he'd wandered his life. Even after becoming a pastor, he had wandered and wandered and wandered. Eventually, he denied the the divinity of Christ, and his life was unhappy, and he became a wretched, wretched man, almost to the point of leaving the faith. He had wandered so far. Now, there's a story um, that hasn't been verified, but it's a well-known story, and it goes something like this. Uh, Robert Robinson was one day in, in that wretched, wretched state. He was sitting in a stagecoach. He was sitting in, in um, one of the trains, in the car, uh, one, of, one of the cars of, of a train, and he hears a lady humming to that song. Come down fount of every medicine. And after singing the song, she turns over to him and says, hey, what do you think about this song? And he looks back at her and he says, ma'am, I am that wretched man who wrote that hymn many, many years ago. And I would give a thousand wor- worlds if I had them, if I can feel now as I felt then. You know, some of you, yes, might be tempted Is this wilderness really better? Is this life as a Christian, now being enlightened, now with the conscience, now knowing sin, is this actually better? And the Lord, through this passage, is reminding us that he has actually made our bitter lives sweet. And because the Lord is with us, even the wilderness is now paradise. And so this morning, if any of you are struggling with doubt or unbelief, if any of you are struggling with forgetting the goodness of the Lord or relapsing, may you now rest under Elam, under springs and with shade, being reminded of how good the Lord is and how he has saved us in his son, Christ Jesus. Join me in prayer at this time.